from the crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. This is your boy Marty Bent. Back in the studio here at Barstool Sports, uh, sitting with somebody who I would consider possibly the most interesting person I've ever met in my life, in person. Uh, some of you may not know this man. Uh, he's, he's a political activist, a revolutionary, some would, some would put forward. He's the co-founder of democracy.earth, great husband, great father, and again, like I said, one of the most interesting men I've met personally, Santiago Siri. Santi, welcome to the podcast. I was expecting you to mention a completely different name. I'm humbled, man. Thank you. Oh, stop that. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess we'll start. Like, I met Santi in January. Is that when we first met? I think so. But in Bitcoin years, it's like 1982. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like we've known each other for at least 10 years now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the way I met Santi, I saw he was moving. I was Twitter Twitter stalker. Saw that he was moving to New York from San Francisco. Uh, knew that he was into Bitcoin. Is is working on a project that that intends to work with the blockchain. And hit him up and said, "Hey, would you like to meet for beers?" And lo and behold, we met at JG Mellon's a week later and had yeah. one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life. Yeah, I was just arriving to New York when we met. Yeah. And uh, now you're settled. You're settled, right? Yeah, yeah, settled. Pretty happy here. It's a great town. Yeah, it's. Um, I never. Uh, it's funny. I never liked New York until I moved here. I was one of those those Philly kids who's like, ah, screw New York, and then you live here. It's like, <laughs> all right, I understand what everybody's talking about. But the reason um, I wanted to bring Santi in to talk about Bitcoin and sort of what he's working on is because you have a unique perspective. Uh, being from Argentina, you've you've seen a lot of shit in your day when it comes yeah. to ec economies and, and politics. And I would love for for all the listeners to sort of hear your story and where you came from. So I guess we could start sort of, let's go back to uh, El Partido, El Part excuse me, Partido de Red. <laughs> Close enough, Close Partido enough. de la Red. <laughs> Partido de la Red. My Spanish is going to get better throughout the podcast, I promise. <laughs> So yeah, um, you know, Argentina etymologically argent means silver, uh, and it's a country that has been obsessed with commodities uh, like silver and other types, uh, even since before becoming an independent nation 200 years ago. It was the the way where the smugglers of the Spanish Empire uh, used to trade, uh, and uh, it's still a place where there's a almost uh, fever about uh, money and uh, finance and and which has led to a culture that has been very unstable <laughs> regarding financial and banking and governments uh, throughout our young history um, Argentina as most people know uh, has gone through all kinds of financial crises that you can imagine like uh, high extremely high hyperinflation to uh, the banks confiscating our savings to inflation all over again. And that instability, uh, at least for the people of my generation, that at least have the advantage of growing up in a democracy, a very young democracy that's uh, 30 years old, um, has uh, led to the fact that when Bitcoin appeared in our country, at least among the geeks and the, and the nerds uh, that were used to digital technology, was like a no-brainer. Um, I remember when I discovered Bitcoin uh, around 2011, uh, you, in Argentina we had 40% of annual inflation rate. The peso was a currency that melted in your hands. 
you had to spend it quickly because you were not able to use it for savings and you were forbidden to buy foreign currency so when bitcoin came along it was uh, the way out it mm -hmm. was uh, you know an incredible no-brainer for us argentines to start uh, using a currency that uh, and a technology that could liberate us from the coercion of the state and the banks yeah, you hear the stories of, of people getting paychecks in Argentina and then immediately running to the supermarket to buy as much food as possible so their their money didn't lose value. There were periods when uh, I remember my mother telling me this. I was too young, but the price of the products during the morning uh, uh, were not the same as the price during the afternoon and not the same during the evening. Uh, and uh, that kind of mentality, you know, it's very traumatic uh, for a society. So uh, we are always looking for these kinds of solutions. And so, when did you discover Bitcoin? Um, I think it was around 2011. Mm -hmm. uh, in 2009, I was already working on digital currencies. I was working on a project that did a reputation-based currency called Woofy Bank. And since then, I was obsessed with you know this monetary history and you know and how technology could disrupt currency. And when Bitcoin appeared, it was uh, like. Aha! Uh -huh, you know, it's this is the issue that we needed to address: decentralization, uh, avoiding the central authority, and it uh, I, it was an instant crush. And why well, I find your story so fascinating because you sort of have this financial background in Argentina, where where the economy has had bouts of hyperinflation, sort of chaotic and unstable, and then you have sort of this political side of you where you're, where you're building a, a political party that represents uh, our modern times more, uh, an online political party, basically. Yeah. The net party, right? Yeah, the net party. The net party. Um, and sort of seeing where those two collide, what you're doing now with democracy.earth has been so interesting to, to watch unfold over the last, I think I've been following for the last three or four years. Let me tell you a story about how the party got started. Um, when I discovered Bitcoin, I'm, I think uh, probably the Gawker article was, uh, you know, happening around that time, and there was this myth whether you could actually buy drugs online, and you know there was this anonymous currency that you could use to get drugs online. So I figured, if this is true, you know, this is profoundly revolutionary. The fact that you are able to transact online without banks, without credit cards, and uh, I figured, well, let's let's you know check out this Silk Road thing and f you know see if it's real. And I remember accessing the Silk Road for the first time, downloading the Tor browser. Uh, you uh, back then, I remember you 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 were able to access uh, this weird onion site that gave you a blank page, and you refresh, and it wasn't a 404 or you know some kind of error message. It was just a blank page. So that meant that, you know, well, let's check the source code. And when you look into the source code, you found the instructions to create a user. And then I figured, well, I created my user. And then I logged in into Silk Road. And I saw this entire market of uh, stuff, <laughs> of knowledge. Let's go put it that way. Yeah, because uh, Silk Road wasn't only uh, a marketplace. They, they had a lot of very thoughtful, philosophical conversations in the forums on yeah. for Silk Road, from what I understand. Fred Pirate Roberts and... Mm -hmm. Uh, like a very wild uh, libertarian anarcho-capitalist agenda, uh, but uh, and there were very you know fun products. I remember one guy that was selling a tutorial to get uh, where you had to click on Amazon, so Amazon ships you a free Kindle, and it sold the tutorial for one Bitcoin, which was one dollar or two dollars back then. 
and there was a picture of the guy with a Christmas tree full of Kindles. <laughs> and uh, there was stuff like that that was a lot of fun. So you, you could figure out you know, a way of getting a Kindle for a couple of dollars. That guy must be very wealthy right now. Uh, and then there were you know the substances. Um, I remember making a purchase, two purchases, mm -hmm. uh, with a difference of one hour because I wanted to check the volume between the IDs of each purchase to s understand the size of the... And I remember the distance between the IDs was a thousand purchases in, in the span of one hour. So it made me realize that, holy shit, there's a lot of activity happening in the Silk Road thing. And I forgot about it until two weeks later, I come home. Uh, I was single back then still. <laughs> <laughs> and I get this envelope from the Netherlands. And I, you know, I check the envelope, I look at it and I said, holy shit, this thing actually arrived to my home in Buenos Aires. <laughs> let's open it. Let's do the unboxing, man. And I started doing the unboxing. I remember it was like a couple of uh, flyers written in, written in Dutch about nonsense. And it had a perfectly sealed, right from the factory, of uh, Disney stickers, like uh, Walt Disney, Mickey and Donald stickers. So I opened the, the envelope of the stickers, perfectly sealed, and there were four stickers, Donald Duck, Pluto, and, and probably Mickey or Minnie. And in one of the stickers, there was a smaller sticker uh, attached to it that had a little hologram that said, we are anonymous. Wow. And when you remove that little sticker, you had you know two pieces of... Uh, Let's call it uh, lysergic uh, acid. <laughs> Some mind-altering substances. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> and uh, I remember, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later, a friend of mine was having a birthday, you know, at, at his house in the, in the countryside of Buenos Aires. So I went there with a bunch of friends and this stuff that I just got from the Internet. And, you know, everyone had it that night. <laughs> <laughs> And it was very, very strong. Yeah. Uh, very strong. And, uh, you know, with that friend, exactly one month later, uh, we started together uh, the Partido de la Red. Really? Really. Wow. So, you know, that's a powerful trip, man. Yeah. That's a powerful trip. We literally started a political party. Um, we, we started, uh, you know... Uh, figuring out how to hack democracy, build an open source software that would engage citizenship to participate and understand the processes for legally incorporating the party. And you've created the perfect segue for me. That's exactly what I wanted to talk about. So you, you talk about this a lot. I was watching a lot of your YouTube videos uh, today in prep. If you guys haven't seen Santi's TED Talks, uh, his speeches at the World Economic Forum and other places around the world, Definitely looked them up on YouTube because they're incredible. And one thing you said, I forget which speech it was, but you were talking about how lawyers were the hackers <laughs> of the last sort of 500-year uh, cycle. They hacked the, yeah. the Constitution and the law and were able to wield uh, the system into, into their vision. And now you say today's modern-day lawyers are hackers who are yeah. writing code. Definitely. I, I remember saying that a lot in the initial days of the Partido de la Red. Uh, if you look into the Congress of any uh, civilized nation, quote-unquote, <laughs> you will find that 60 to 70% of the members of Congress are lawyers, and they are the ones that get to write the law, and they are the ones that they get to you know, work around the law. Uh, and definitely they are hackers of an old paradigm of information technology that is establishing trust through 
printed contracts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, our speech with the Partido de la Red back then was, you know, let's bring democracy to the 21st century. Let's use the internet to build a much better social contract between the constituencies and their representatives. And our approach was, you know, it was a hybrid approach where we will do the political party, but the political party would have as a secret weapon or ideological basis uh, its uh, open source software and build an open source software that would have uh, as a secret uh, component of the software a political party. The two things went uh, hand in hand together. So uh, we started the development of the software that was uh, Democracy OS, the first version of the software that we did. And the political party ran for Congress in 2013, one year later after after we started it. We built sort of a momentum around it. Because I was in a radio show in Argentina, I was able to subversively broadcast uh, the information about the party to millions of listeners back then. I did a, a tech column in a, in a radio show. And uh, we had these weekly meetings every Friday night where it was about... Uh, alcohol, narcotics, technology, and politics. And uh, as we approached to election day in in 2013, it became a movement. Uh, And a lot of people joined from a wide range of ideological uh, origins and social class origins, like from all parts of the city. And uh, we started this, you know, petite revolution in Buenos Aires of know, having a, a Trojan political party that will put a candidate that will respond to what everyone says online with a with a software. It, it's again, like I said, I'm sitting with one of the most interesting men I've ever met in my life. Uh, starting your own political party in a Trojan horse kind of way, and <laughs> so that's what your the whole concept behind Democracy Earth is liquid democracy, and you you yeah. talk a lot about how. It's nuanced. It's not exactly direct democracy. It's not what we have now. Yeah. It's sort of a, a combination, yeah. if you will. And so, I guess, if you could explain sort of the the concept of liquid democracy, how it differs from what we're doing now, and how it might look in the future. So, you know, the experience of starting the party was pretty wild. There's a lot of you know beautiful stories to share about you know, people being incredibly idealistic and a new generation engaging in politics under, you know, a, a speech that is not the cliches from the left or the right that meant about, you know, let's bring and use technology to reshape our Congress. But there's a lot of nasty things of doing and being an, a political entrepreneur in, a, in Latin America in Argentina. Uh, sadly, it's a very corrupt country. Uh, we had... Uh, uh, secret service agents infiltrating our party meetings to sabotage them and uh, really yeah <laughs> really i wrote an article specifically like giving the details about that uh, uh they came to the meetings to to you know disincentivize people to keep coming and they generated a lot of noise and trouble uh, and they were tied to secret service uh, in argentina in a period where the government was doing a lot of internal spying uh, mm-hmm. Um, we had a federal judge uh, suggest us to pay a bribe so we could run in the 2015 election. We did not run in that election, uh, which, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, so, you know, discovering also a very corrupt and, and, and nasty environment such as politics in general um, was a bit of a disillusionment. But in 2015, we got a call from Y Combinator. And YC basically said, 
can't think about democracy, you know, from a global perspective and build the technology for it. And there's where we started the Democracy Earth Foundation. And with Democracy Earth, what we're trying to uh, properly understand, other than, you know, you know, building technology for 21st century democracy, is also understanding how the internet itself can become a planetary jurisdiction that enables borderless uh, connections, uh, political and economical, between people of uh, anywhere, uh, from anywhere in the planet. And uh, I think, you know, we have the means to actually achieve that with censorship-resistant networks, uh, mm -hmm. such as blockchains and, you know, the rise of Bitcoin has been uh, an incredibly powerful influence that has led us to actually be able to think in these terms. So with Democracy Earth, um, we, we are building a liquid democracy platform. The idea is uh, for this platform to be, the idea of liquid democracy is that it's a hybrid between representative democracy and, uh, and direct democracy, where you as a citizen get to directly vote on the issues you care about, or delegate your voting capacity not to a representative you see on TV, but actually a friend or a colleague or a or a family member that you already know and trust, and uh, you know simply build the foundations for democratic trust in a peer-to-peer -peer network using tokens on a blockchain. So these relationships are uh, uh, auditable by anyone, and you know it, it, it plays in a very transparent uh, playground. So uh, since 2015, uh, I've been obsessively coding and building this technology, and uh, it's been quite an interesting roller coaster because it's the blend of everything that we have tried in the past with the Partido de la Red and Democracy OS. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you guys are getting close to an alpha or beta. I've seen on Insta Instagram. We actually stories. we did a soft, silent release mm -hmm. of the 1.0 version. It's in alpha still, but. It's a stable uh, release. It's actually, e you know, this is exclusive, exclusive uh, for the listeners of this podcast. If you go to vote.democracy.earth, you will find the live app, you know, and you'll be able to uh, post stuff and delegate, get your votes once you register with the, you know, with your credentials and uh, vote on stuff and delegate votes to, to other people. That's awesome. Um, vote.democracy.earth. Yeah, getting a little secret here, tales from the crypt. You know, <laughs> we bring in the good guests. But one thing I wanted to touch on is sort of the censorship resistance of mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Sort of makes this liquid democracy possible because you can vote and mm -hmm. sort of know that it's one person, one vote. Yeah. Um, how important is the censorship resistance, and sort of how does it how does it compare to what we have now? So you are. This is what I wanted to talk about. You are very vocal uh against facebook and twitter censorship specifically they are they are big uh data hoarders they collect a ton of data and mm -hmm. they have a lot of information on all of us uh it's something we sort of didn't know growing up with the internet the way we built it in the first iteration mm -hmm. uh, i guess i and i'm assuming you would argue too is that we might have done it wrong up to this point with how how we control our data or how we let companies control our data and um, so with democracy.earth and the censorship resistance movement, you're sort of pushing people to get away from these data silos. Is that correct? Yeah, they, uh, it's very evident that, that the outcome of the last U.S. election, which is the most important election in the world, uh, has led to uh, an awakening <laughs> that uh, made us all realize how deeply influential social media actually is by proxy 
in anywhere in the world, not just in the US, anywhere in the world, uh, Facebook or Twitter drive electoral conversations, drive political conversations. And their newsfeed algorithms are not accountable to anyone other than you know the authorities of the company. Uh, the network owners are the ones that get to benefit from the likes that we post on these uh, networks. Um, and uh, it's no coincidence that the only guy endorsing Donald Trump from Silicon Valley was Peter Thiel. <laughs> uh, so that says a lot about the kind of power that has become centralized in these entities. Two billion people are using Facebook on a daily basis. That's more people than China, more people than the Islamic religion or than you know the Roman Apostolic Church. So it's um, we need to address this not by you know reacting against it and banning Facebook or Twitter, but actually embracing the fact that our democracy's uh, playground now lives on the internet, and uh, we need to figure out how to engage in political conversation that triggers real action, that triggers uh, you know economical transactions or allocation of trust mm -hmm. uh, in ways that are compatible with this new arena with these new commons that we are unconsciously have been developing for the last 20 25 years since the internet became uh, so popular so we are trying to deliver a technology for that uh, we are uh, in between the the fact of uh, redefining you know politics on a post nation state world and at the same time trying to open up the kinds of interactions that have been closed on the facebooks and twitters and you know s traditional social media of this world the like is a token but the problem with the like token is that it's you know privately owned by the facebook corporation uh it's, it has infinite inflation it's very s easily subject to all kinds of civil attacks or you know, identity manipulations of all kinds and you know it's the one thing that drives advertising budgets advertising dollars uh <laughs> advertising rubles um so uh, I think that we need to disrupt the, the like. Mm -hmm. And with democracy.earth, we are trying to build a vote token. And, 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 and you know, we are very open-minded in terms of uh, you know, what kind of blockchain we can use for it. We can implement a ERC-20 token. We can implement, uh, we can use uh, Satoshis as uh, signaling votes using Lightning Network. Mm -hmm. There are many approaches that we are open up to exploring. Uh, we have been mostly focusing on the UX side of things. But ultimately, we need to address the fact that, you know, vote is one of the main verbs of how we interact in, with society and how we signal decisions and preferences to society. And we need to have, you know, a crypto vote operating in, in, in this kind of networks that is able to, to capture political will and, and, uh, and address, you know, multi-stakeholder decision making anywhere. And... That's what's so crazy about it, because these tools, Twitter, Facebook, they're so powerful. The, yeah. the, the, the lines of communication that have been opened up between people all over the world. It's like I touched, we touched on it last week with Pierre. Like, we have these technologies in our hands, and we, we literally, our species cannot comprehend what they're doing to us right now, because our brains are, are reptile brains. And what we is the species, right? Yeah. Is it us, or is it something bigger than us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can get into that later. We'll get into some crazy <laughs> AI theories later. But one thing you touched on um, is you are preparing for a post-nation state world. What does that look like? What is a post-nation state world and how well, how are we transitioning into it? Let's look at the nationalist world for, for a contrast. It's a world where we have you know, a, a big crisis regarding climate change. We have uh, 
terrorist attacks, we have uh, uh, migrations and refugees uh, collapsing in the infrastructure of countries, and uh, we have uh, wars, proxy wars in different locations around the world. And we have these kinds of issues that are all in the fringes of what corporations and nation states can address because they are competing with each other and they are tied to these uh, political silos. The economy has been pretty much globalized, uh, although for a few. Uh, and at the same time, you know, it's, it's a very troubling thing that uh, whatever you are born, you either won the lottery in life or not. If you are born in the U.S., you probably have, will do very well in your life. If you are born in Mozambique, you will, will, you will struggle. So I think that the fact that we have censorship-resistant networks, networks that are rewarding uh, decentralized uh, behavior, you know, that, are, that are, have the incentives to keep building infrastructure that you know, becomes uh, resistant to single point of failures or, 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 or any kind of central control, and that we are able to build this for the fact that you know, we have the ability to make a cryptographic technology that is able to protect these kind of networks, uh, that's an incredible possibility of modern information technology. And in this century that we get to live, that we get to be here on this earth, I think that the great narrative to be built, if we don't want to make the same mistakes of uh, the fascist uh, governments of the 20th century, all kinds of fascist governments on the left and the right, if we want to avoid that trap again, I think that we really need to address the next big chapter of the internet. The first chapter of the internet is this cultural revolution. You know, a guy from anywhere in the world can broadcast his message to anyone at an imperceptible cost. Uh, great, the cultural revolution has been pretty much done in the, since the rise of the World Wide Web and the HTTP protocols. Now the next chapter is about transforming the, institu the institutional layer. Uh, and institutions, you know, traditionally are a collection of promises that, are, that consist of uh, leadership and authorities that enforce those promises that are written in, in contracts. Uh, and those contracts, sometimes, you know, the, the real deals are done, you know, behind doors and among uh, the few powerful, influential people of an organization. And, you know, you have a lot of decision laundering happening in traditional institutions and in government. Uh, so that leads to a lot of uh, distrust with established organizations. And uh, now we have blockchains, which is this new kind of bureaucratic uh, network where we get to store promises that are transparent, auditable in a permissionless way. Uh, in the case of democracy, every voter gets the right to audit the election without requiring any kind of special permission to access the servers or to access the infrastructure or the, the authority running the election. So that kind of uh, democratization in the process of uh, you know, how we are able to design and build institutions is extremely powerful. Anyone with access to a blockchain anywhere in the world can create a startup that from day zero will be able to be a multinational, will be able to get funding from anyone anywhere in the world, and will be able to you know, tie its performance uh, to either a token or some kind of a crypto asset that will drive the, the incentives of the organization in very creative and new ways that, you know, ultimately this canvas gives us a much uh, broader continuum of possibilities on how we can create organizations and institutions than the, you know, printed uh, era technologies of the past. So I think that the new generations need to embrace this global planetary revolution 
and take action. We sort of have a matrix moment on our hand where where Neo's able to sort of is that in the third one or the second one where they where they where they stop where he meets the architect and he, yeah, and he stops architect. what's going on. We've basically met the architect and we're <laughs> we're looking him in the face right now saying, "Hey, we're we're not going to let this cycle happen again." And that's what blows my mind and Lewis and I were talking about this earlier. It's one of the Bitcoin and blockchain like what I'm trying to get through to you freaks out there is that this is one of the best, the most profound inventions of humanity, not just our time. Oh, yeah, definitely of humanity. And this is one thing I sort of want to delve into now. Like We talked about this as J.D. Mellon when we when we met up with DeSantis that one time. Yeah. And had that crazy conversation. (laughs) We talk about and we touched on it a little bit last episode, but the religious undertones and sort of. DeSantis is so good at he yeah he can draw parallels to that but if you talk about like the Genesis block Mm -hmm. and sort of Satoshi the the origin story the 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 Genesis block is sort of like a big bang to some would argue life discovering itself (laughs) Um, so that's one thing when we talked earlier in the year you said you were rereading the Bible looking for yeah looking for uh, inspiration or sort of parallels because you had hit a rut at that point is that is that correct um yeah i i started reading the apocalypse in the bible Mm -hmm. uh, right after i moved to new york and i didn't you know probably the last time i tried to read the apocalypse was when i was a you know a a little child trying to look into this devilish book uh, that was you know forbidden to read and i probably didn't understand a single thing but now as an adult i looked into it again right after moving into New York, and it turns out that it's a book about Babylon and the decadence of Babylon. So it felt very close to home right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the Bible and these uh, kind of sources, uh, when you contrast it with, you know, cutting-edge technologies such as Bitcoin that have a very powerful creation myth, uh, like, uh, you know, Satoshi and being this uh, mythical figure that has, uh, that is pretty much... Uh, uh, disrupting the entire world of finance, uh, if not uh, the entire world, period. Um, I think that there's uh, some clues that you can find in that kind of literature that it's interesting mm-hmm. to, to catch. Yeah, we were saying that the Bible is sort of a way to bootstrap society. Like if mm-hmm. everything were to go to shit and Bibles were to survive, it's sort of a way to... The Bible was the blockchain of its time. It was mm-hmm. a book that was... It required a lot of permissions uh, to actually write something, but you knew that if you were uh, were able to uh, get something uh, published in the Bible, it would be there for eternity, right? Because it was the most sacred and the most... The book with the largest hashing power, (laughs) uh, right? (laughs) That is true. And uh, that was the pinnacle of printed or written technology, uh, of uh, written, written text. Uh, and it's still here, and I think it's uh, you know lo- when you touch religious subjects, you know everyone has very strong opinions uh, about these type of subjects, but I like to address them with an open mind because uh, there's so much we don't know that it's uh, uh, sometimes listening to the voice of uh, tradition is uh, can can really bring uh, insight into what's ahead of us. Definitely, uh, it's, it's I went to a Jesuit high school. And we had to do the history of the Catholic Church, and we actually learned history of Islam and Buddhism and stuff like that. What you learn, there's these themes throughout these these religious stories, and it, they're 
like I said, they're helping bootstrap society. So if everything ever goes to shit, you go back to these stories and it's like, all right, this is how you be a good person. You this know, is sort of the journey you should aim to go on. The When I did my Y Combinator interview in, in San Francisco, uh, just uh, three or four days before I came from, I, I made that trip from Rome uh, where I, without expecting it, met Pope Francis. Really? <laughs> Yeah. First uh, Jesuit Pope. <laughs> AMDG, baby. Uh, let me tell you this story because it's it's not a story that I share in interviews. It's a story that I share with friends. And since we're with friends here, I, I think it's a good time to share it. Um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm part of the World Economic Forum, which is, you know, the establishment club. And I was like a young promise uh, entrepreneur from Argentina that, you know, somehow got into that into that place, which is an interesting place to meet, you know, extremely influential people from around the world. And the World Economic Forum wanted to lobby the Vatican so the Pope would go to Davos. Uh, so they invited me, being from Argentina, the same country of the Pope, as a, as a young entrepreneur, to be part of that mission. And I went to Rome, um, uh, you know, in this trip to, 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 to you know, I, I just wanted the excuse to get to meet Pope Francis, uh, his a national hero in Argentina, uh, and the the forum wasn't able to actually convince the church to uh, get the guy in Davos. Every priest there, actually, they were all Argentine priests. They were telling me it's good for you guys to try. The guy will never go to Davos, uh, and um, but nonetheless, the uh, the church agreed that three members of the eighty members that flew there from the World Economic Forum. Three members were going to get the right or the opportunity to give the Pope a, a letter in person. And those uh, three people were uh, a girl from Costa Rica, so a woman would go, uh, a guy from pa Pakistan, so a, a, an Islamic guy would go, and an Argentine priest. And uh, when we were entering the Vatican and these three guys were prepared to, to meet the Pope, the Argentine priest said, Oh, I, I already know Francis. Santi. Come, come, come you in my place. Oh, and wow. he sneaked me in uh, and he decided not to go to the meeting. And I suddenly found myself with all the bishops of the Vatican without expecting it, 7 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I might have some weed before getting into the Vatican. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I get to, to go to the Vatican and suddenly I realize I'm about to meet the Pope. Uh, and it was uh, quite profound for me. Uh, you know, I... I was like in awe and in shock, um, and uh, after that trip, you know, I had to fly to San Francisco uh, for Y Combinator, uh, and we had our interview, with the famous 10-minute interview, whether they tell you if you are nerd enough to be with them or not. <laughs> uh, for, the, for those of you that don't know, Y Combinator is a venture capitalist incubator fund based out of San Francisco. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much the most famous one for early-stage startups. And you obviously, we knew that YC was a life-changing uh, thing for us. Uh, we were, you know, if they we were able to be there, we were able to build this, the kind of organization that we're building now. And um, YC accepted us. We did YC later on. And while we were doing YC, my wife got pregnant, Pia, who is also my Pia. partner in Democracy Earth. We have done a lot of things together. So, and my my little daughter was born and the name of my daughter is Roma. Uh, so I see this kind of very personal connection between Pope Francis, 
San Francisco and Y Combinator and my, my, my daughter being born throughout the experience of starting up in the US uh, as a very, you know, yeah, a personal religious experience of sorts because the, the, the causality of events uh, definitely looks weird in my, yes. in my personal story and, and, you know, and it looks miraculous because, you know, yeah, having a daughter is the most beautiful thing that you can experience in my opinion. It's crazy how things work out, and you didn't only have a daughter. You have a daughter that's going to be in history books at someday. Yes, Roma is the first uh, birth certificate in the blockchain, in she the is. Bitcoin blockchain. She is, yeah. yeah. So for those of you who don't know, Santiago, the day Roma was born, yeah, he embedded her birth certificate into the blockchain using a video and yeah. testimony, right? You needed a couple witnesses. It's going to be two years on Monday, actually. Okay. Uh, when she was born, I did this video. This actually is uh, an idea that Ryan Shea from Blockstack gave me. Uh, I, I, I was meeting with Ryan a week before Roma was born, and he said, you should do this. <laughs> and I said, I will do it, man. <laughs> yeah, you should do it. Uh, so kudos to Ryan for, for pointing me in this direction. I did this, this, this video uh, the day after Roma was born where it's me, very tired. You can see me, I'm very tired and saying I'm Roma's father and, and I filmed the birth certificate of her given by the hospital in San Francisco. I filmed Pia, you know, my wife, who, who's Roma's mother. Then my mother-in-law and my mother were there as witnesses and they, you know, they give their information. And then I filmed the screen of my computer that shows the last block in the blockchain, the, 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 last, uh, the height of the blockchain and the nonce of the last block in the blockchain as proof that I was shooting this video at least in that moment of time. Then with that video file, I generate a hash. I use proof of existence, which is a service done by my friend Manuel Araos from Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. Manu, a great programmer from Argentina. And um, I hash the video uh, and it does a Bitcoin transaction that puts encodes the hash of the video in the Bitcoin transaction. So now I can verify that that video actually was made on November 7, 2015, and that none of the contents of that video have been corrupted or changed in any way, or any copy of that video for that matter. So the video works as proof, you know, that the contents inside in it are legitimate and that it has been shot at least in that moment of uh, time. So it's, uh, you know, in practical terms, it's a birth certificate without requiring authority from the state, from the city of San Francisco, from Ar the Argentine government, from no traditional institution other than my self-sovereign right as her father to you know, let the world know that she exists. And I just used the Bitcoin blockchain to you know, uh, demonstrate it. And it's, it's so ingenious. My favorite part about that video is that you introduced Roma as a citizen of Earth. Oh, yeah. A citizen of the world. So beautiful, and right? It is. It is. And like we were talking about earlier with these technologies opening up lines of communication and globalization, and we really, borders are dissolving whether Donald Trump wants to accept it or not. <laughs> but we, we are breaking down these barriers, and I think more and more people as we go forward are going to start saying, hey, I'm a citizen of the earth. I'm just some, yeah. I'm some guy. I'm here trying to get through this life like you. You're doing the same as me. We're all going to do this together. These borders, I think you would argue and I would argue one day are going to sound st silly looking back. Yeah, and I think you know we can achieve it, and we can achieve it sooner than we can expect it to happen. Uh, and you know, it's like that John Lennon so uh, song, uh, Imagine. <laughs> it, it's, the dream is starting to become very real more and more. It is, and it's... Uh, 
I don't want to say it's scary that the dream's coming true, but it is chaotic. The dream coming true is a chaotic transition. You it's know? scary, like uh, all changes. Yes, that's uh, true. But uh, I think it's inevitable, and I think it's, we have a responsibility. The internet generation, I hate the word millennials, <sighs> the internet generation, the generation that is you know, right from the get-go being raised up with this global consciousness uh, connecting us all uh, is, um, you know, I think it's a generation that will surprise us in incredible new ways, as it is actually doing with innovations like Bitcoin and all the stuff that is happening. And, yeah, and it's crazy, again, like I said, it's crazy how fast everything's happening. Like, Donald Trump's our president. Uh, <laughs> we, we talked about, that, like, things are getting crazy, obviously, in the traditional world. And one thing that Pierre said last week when we were speaking is that like he doesn't even pay attention to traditional politics or mm. what's going on there. He focuses on Bitcoin, and that's like what I think you're doing very well. At Democracy Earth is you're like you say in your talks, taking the Buckminster Fuller, Buckminster yeah. Fuller, and building a system outside of our existing yeah. system. Build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Exactly, <laughs> and. That's another message I'm trying to get across in the newsletter. I don't know if you catch this vibe and with the yeah. podcast now, it's like, all right, we've got this technology in our hands, people. We could use it for good. Let's let's walk down this path. We're at a fork in the road right now. We could keep doing the same bullshit yeah. we've been doing for years. Or we could literally, since it's open source, just each person start building something yeah. towards this for this huge decentralized system that could that could be better than the centralized system that we have now. We have enormous power in our hands already. And it's a matter of finding the right software with the right uh, configuration, the right networks, the right encryption uh, for us to break free. Uh, there's no nothing stopping us. Uh, there will be, you know, there's uh, all kinds of entities that seek control. Um, but ultimately, I think that there's a, you know, a, a, there's a physical phenomenon going on with the prevalence and of information in, in our reality, you know, whether it's Moore's law or you know singularity or you know put any metaphor to describe what's happening. But there's definitely a big transformation in human consciousness in a global scale, and I I, I like being you know loyal to that. I, I believe in that more than in I believe in politicians more than I believe in, you know, traditional power structures. Um, and I think we have this uh, tremendous opportunity literally in our hands. And one thing I want to note is that these this the number one thing this, these technologies are doing in my mind is creating empathy. Yeah. You create empathy. You can put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And, and especially with Twitter and live video streaming and stuff like that, you could literally find people that are living in war zones. This is what I found so fascinated about Twitter when I first... I first got on in 2011. I didn't really start using Twitter a lot around until like 2012, 2013 when all the Syria stuff was starting. And you could literally go and follow a Syrian who was in Raqqa or yeah. in that war-torn area and get their point of view. And that yeah. was the amount of empathy that created just, just by able to click a few buttons and get a first-hand account was something that blew my mind and is created a twitter addiction like i'm addicted to <laughs> to this empathy creation yeah yeah it's uh I, I you know technology can be a double-edged sword also there's the argument on how much it leads to polarization and mm -hmm. you do find 
sometimes like endless debates uh, on Twitter that get very nasty very soon, you know. Uh, Finding that out with the block size debate. <laughs> not get not entering or not opening up that door, uh, yeah. but uh, I think ultimately it all speaks about human nature, uh, how we are discovering these new boundaries in the uh, space of information. Uh, you know, I, I read this year, and if there's any recommendation I can make, definitely this is a good book to recommend, to, to recommend uh, called uh, A Mind at Play. It's the biography of Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon is the father of information theory, and he's the guy that uh, during the Second World War, uh, on his spare time, while he was providing services to, you know, uh, the U.S. Army, the cryptology division of the uh, I guess the the pre-NSA kind of entity that was operating back then for U.S. intelligence and working at Bell Labs. In that you know span of time, he came with this paper, a uh, paper as important as uh, Satoshi's paper on on Bitcoin and electronic peer-to-peer cash system, a paper as important as uncomputable numbers uh, of Alan Turing that gave you know the very the primitives that led to the creation of the first computers, and uh, in the Magna Carta of the information theory, authored by Claude Shannon, uh, it's he understands what information is. Uh, he's the first one to actually acknowledge the the concept of the bit, uh, he actually you know describes what a bit is, well, uh, the entropy attached to how we uh, express information, and, and and you know he he basically gave birth to the fact that we can use digital uh, code to uh, express any kind of message in any kind of format, and is um, he was a very low profile guy, uh, very playful guy with that did a lot of weird experiments throughout his life but he birthed the concept of the beat and understood the reality of uh, information space and the thing about information is that we are starting to realize that you know information is as relevant uh, if not more than uh, matter in uh, when it comes to shape our conscious experience when it comes to shape the architecture of reality that we we are embedded in uh, light is a transmitter of information in three-dimensional dimension. Uh, so, um, Cloud Shannon maybe was, you know, something uh, even as big as uh, probably Einstein or Newton when it regards to describe a fundamental property of our universe that we thought it was an abstract concept, the idea of uh, information being an abstraction of reality. But maybe there's a very powerful real aspect to information in the universe, and uh, the fact that you know how these technologies keep uh, taking over the world, how software keeps eating the world, like Mark Andreessen says, uh, is definitely very telling uh, about uh, the physical properties of information. It seems like there's some kind of gravitational pull that is driving us more and more to get into this new cosmovision of uh, the world and the universe that is driven primarily by information and then by matter. And my favorite vehicle of this information and this matter is memes. Oh, yeah. So even you're talking about uh, Claude, uh, Claude Shannon's information theory, you couple that with Richard Dawkins' meme theory. You know what, what's my highlight, my best moment in Twitter history? What is this? 
when I exchanged tweets with Richard Dawkins. <laughs> really? I'm not kidding. You can look for it. Just uh, search on Twitter, Richard Dawkins, Santi City, and you will find my exchange with him. Sometime in February 2015, I was doing Y Combinator. It was 1 a.m. in the morning for me, and I asked Richard Dawkins if he ever uh, did a psychedelic experience. Uh, being him the champion of atheism, uh, I always wondered, and I always looked for this on, on Google, and I, I never could find any information or any interview So I got the chance to ask uh, Sir Richard Dawkins if he ever had a psychedelic trip, and he actually replied and said, oh no, uh, I didn't, but a friend of mine suggested uh, doing LSD. Would you recommend it? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, man. And if you want to go into re really insightful shit, do ayahuasca. I said something like that. Do I, I had a buddy do ayahuasca the other night in Brazil. Holy uh, shit. He said it was an experience. Um, I did it in, in the Amazons in Peru. Yeah. That's one thing. That's on my bucket list. Um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to say go out and do all the psychedelics, but I will say <laughs> psychedelics every once in a while doesn't hurt. Uh, I've, I've been on record saying that shrooms changed my life to a certain extent. <laughs> yeah. Steve Jobs said, uh, you know, LSD, it changed his life. Um, and I think, you know, It's a taboo for most of society, this kind of conversation, but I think that slowly and we need to open up about it. Uh, there are great uh, philosophers on YouTube that are very alive on YouTube, like Terence McKenna, mm -hmm. uh, Alan Watts. Alan uh, Watts. You know, those, those philosophers are among my favorite ones. And uh, we're on the right path. We're getting a lot of data coming out right now that psilocybin specifically is helping with PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, with, uh, with troops that come back from war. Uh, when they're going through therapy, they're finding that uh, doing a little shroom therapy actually helps them out a yeah. little bit. Um, and again, like, it's crazy. They, in my opinion, psychedelics just help you realize that there's many ways to view the world. Yeah, it gives... Uh, Uh, multiple points of view at once sometimes like, exactly like, uh, yes y and you see it in the colors you know you suddenly see more colors or stronger hue or you know the colors in between the movements that you make or you know and you feel the the pulse of nature and the trees seem like more alive all those sensations that we cannot properly find words to describe them because they transcend our traditional spectrum of perception because it has been widened by the experience induced by uh, any kind of uh, uh, of these substances uh, you know, I think these are uh, you know interesting experiences to engage with and it's always uh, interesting to you know get a friend that knows about it and and take you on your first trip if you've never done it before but it definitely is the buddy system if yeah, you're doing this definitely definitely um, yeah so definitely try psychedelics if you if you get a chance with a buddy But back to the information theory and memes, that's one thing that is getting crazy for me personally, like sort of realizing when you break down a meme, it's basically distilling as much information as possible in yeah. a picture in a couple words. It's an exploit on attention, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we have a meme president right now. Donald Trump is the ultimate meme. Memes won the presidency. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's... It, it's uh, It's pretty mind-blowing. You know, you get this, you know... A like four-letter meme, MAGA. <laughs> MAGA. Uh, when, when I remember when he won, the first thing I did was like, okay, I need to really understand what's going on here. And I started going deep into the troll army behind uh, Trump. And it was uh, mind-blowing to me that you find these weird, uh, you know, uh, uh, online personas that are 
you know, flat out painting themselves in Nazi camouflage uh, mm -hmm. without any kind of guilt. And it's very weird because the trick that they are able to, to achieve with that is that you can, if you reply them, oh, you're a fucking Nazi. Yeah, I don't care. Why? What's, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the news, man. Like, there's nothing you can tell them. Whatever you come, whatever comeback, as smart as it can be, it just will, you know, automatically bounce uh, when you deal with these kind of types. And they exploit uh, social media in ways that are, you know, mind-blowing. The whole 4chan army behind it all, it's like a, oh. an incredible phenomenon. It really is. It is. And that's what we're seeing today. That's how Trump rose the presidency, and our traditional media doesn't know how to react to it. No. They, they, in my opinion, the best way to react to it is to ignore it. Like, yeah. don't give these people any credence. Don't, give don't them any, feed the trolls. Exactly. Don't feed the trolls. But that's what our... 24-7 news is right now in America is feeding <laughs> trolls. Like, yeah, pretty much. And It's another generation, especially broadcast uh, TV and, and mainstream media. It's, you can definitely tell that they are from another an old era already. Yeah, and I think conversations like this are an example of sort of new media and a transition away from that, yeah. and that's what I'm very excited to, to see evolve that's crazy. So technology is disrupting everything. Like software is eating the world. We're talking about how it's disrupting politics, it's disrupting money, it's disrupting media. And trying to keep up with all that happening at once, it feels like we're going a little bit insane. <laughs> is that is that just me or do you feel that as well? No, I feel it. I feel it. Uh, you know, you you, I don't know, every day you wake up, you check uh, what's going on with Bitcoin and it's like uh, it doesn't feel real. No, uh, I was waking up to 7,500 today. I was like, what the it, hell is going on? What the hell is going on? Um, and, uh, you know, I remember celebrating uh, probably New Year's Eve this year. I remember telling Pia, wow, how, how cool Bitcoin is about to cross 1,000. Isn't that cool? You know, we're back to where we were a couple of years ago and thinking, well, you know, I, I had, you know, like everyone, I pretend to have all these uh, well-thought economic theories that project the value of Bitcoin. And my theory back then is a hundred billion dollar market cap for Bitcoin is doable and it can happen within the next two to five years. You know, holy fuck, it happened like <laughs> in eight fucking months. And, and, and now it's like, well, let's go for the fucking trillion now. And like, what is going on? And you hear these voices, you know, savvy, experienced investors telling you it's a bubble. Uh, make sure you have all your buckets ready with your, your distributing your resources in a fair way because, you know, I was there in the 90s, the dot-com bubble. And of course, you know, you want to take a mature approach to it and uh, acknowledge that there's a fever, that there's a lot of speculation, that there's a lot of, you know, um, a fear of missing out. But at the same time, you know, I am a big believer in fundamentals. And in a world where Equifax gets hacked and 155 million identities get exposed, uh, it's just a matter of time for any kind of centralized entity to experience the same thing. And... and the Equifax hack, specifically, if anything, should incentivize us to work harder on these de decentralized technologies. I think it, you know it's probably the Equifax thing is could be argued that it's behind this last rally among the many other variables that, that we can put <sighs> in the table. I but the epiphany everyone is having is in a digital world, in a information-based universe, intrinsical uh, technologies that understand the properties of information in order to secure 
value will prevail in the long term than any patch that you can apply to fiat currency or you know traditional institutions so uh, in you know when you weigh those things in the balance it's like crypto is a no-brainer a no-brainer because like i posted this tweet on twitter and a lot of people were freaking out at me like dude why did you even say that so Theoretically, hypothetically, these hackers who hacked Equifax, they have 150 million social security numbers, identif- uh, addresses, identify, yeah. identifying information. What if they did like a quasi-DDoS of the IRS yeah. and just started filing claims for people that weren't them and filed multiple claims and it just became a whole shit show where every claim that these hackers filed was... was not a correct claim so the IRS would have to redo everything and then going forward from there you wouldn't know what's real and what's not yeah Uh, I think there was a fake website that requested people's information uh, in order to like those attacks will keep on happening Uh, and you know well, the, the fascinating thing is how many of these attacks happen every day that we don't know. Yeah, like banks put a lot of resources on fraud prevention. That's basically you know hackers that are exploiting the vulnerabilities yeah. that are very basic ones regarding credit cards and, and and banks. Yeah, they're they're they put up like a a WordPress like yeah. with no SSH <laughs> uh, security on it for and it got hacked. Average Joe never checks for you know. No, for, no, I don't. I mean, uh, it's. Because it's an extra, it's an extra step. It comes back to UX, but yeah. with Equifax, that's a prime example of the emperor. Emperor wears no clothes. Yeah, and that's again, we're we're transitioning here. Power of social media, the power of the internet, and that's another one of the huge powers. Is everybody is starting to realize that the emperor wears no clothes. They talk a lot of shit. They say they know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'm all in for you know uh, acquiring the capacities that we can to become self-sovereign and you know start thinking about the world as one. Uh, I recently was in Berlin and I found this this great book on the whole Earth catalog, which was this you know uh, cyber culture catalog back in the 70s. Uh, that inspired a lot of the digital revolution that happened after. Uh, Steve Jobs was famous for quoting it when you know, on his Stanford speech saying, stay hungry, stay foolish. That's the mindset that actually was uh, how the whole Earth catalog ended uh, on, on, on every issue. Uh, it quoted that, that phrase. And uh, the thing about the whole Earth uh, mentality is this idea that you know, we now have the technology to really think uh, politically, financially, culturally, the earth as one. Uh, there are no excuses left. Uh, anyone can broadcast uh, who she or he or it is to anyone else anywhere in the world at almost an imperceptible cost. And uh, now we're doing that with money uh, and we'll end up doing that with thoughts and with institutions and with uh, uh, you know, uh, we we need to take this route because otherwise, uh, you know, we can see it on TV very clearly. It's a it's a reality show where people talk about how big their nuke is, and you know, either it's, uh, it's killing each other or or it, outsmarting this. It's a dick dumbasses. measuring contest for psychopaths. Yeah, that's what the political stage of the world is. Oh right yeah, now. and I'm tired of psychopaths running the world. And if you look at oh, it yeah. statistically, like. To have to want that, not statistically, but to want to have that power, you have to be psychotic. 
to a certain oh, yeah. extent. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I... My, I learned this personally in a very personal level uh, with starting up a political party in Argentina. I had this, uh, you know, when we were, when we had to decide the candidates of the party that were going to run for Congress, uh, you present a list in Argentina where you have the first candidate, the second candidate, the third candidate, the first one obviously being the most important one. And uh, when we were getting close to the deadline of presenting the candidates, I felt in a very personal level like the rush and the need to be the first candidate. Mm -hmm. I felt the toxic greed of political power. And I felt it because you had people talking to your ears. You get this poison through your ears that tells you, oh, you're going to be the next president of the country. You have the potential to be. And you start to actually drink in your own Kool-Aid. Mm -hmm. And you, and that's where corruption begins. begins with your own self. And I remember throughout a week or two, I slowly started becoming into this, you know, uh, political animal that wanted to be the first candidate of the party because I started the party and I did this and I did that and I'm, you know, the most popular guy and and I felt it in deeply inside me, and uh, thankfully I was well surrounded back then, and e exorcism happened <laughs> uh, where we smoke a bunch of weed. They got me drunk and I, you know, I wept and I said, yeah, this is bullshit. I don't need to be a politician, and you know, and and I I, I learned to laugh about it. But uh, in hindsight, now I look at it and I can see how easily po power can corrupt. The mm -hmm. temptation of you know. Uh, being that guy that gets the headlines and uh, it's you have you have to work very strong with yourself to preserve yourself from that kind of uh, temptation because it really leads nowhere because you're fighting nature at that point yes yeah. it's within our nature, nature totally it totally. is it is we, we live in hierarchies and we yeah have, we have lived in that mindset since forever and that's the inter again like i said we're we're talking to the architect we're trying to actively fight that nature yeah and so let's get into that fighting our nature is that something like we're finally at a point where we can realize that we may need to do this yeah um so what's what if we move to like a post nation nation state world where there's a lot of sovereign or everybody's a sovereign individual what what does that look like and how how does that uh, how would that differ from sort of the hierarchical structures that we're used to today? Wow, what a great question. Um, I think that uh, you know it, it's quite challenging to actually learn how to remove yourself from the temptations of power. Um, uh, at least, you know, in democracy earth, uh, you know, when you do the website and you have to put someone who is the CEO and the president and whatever, you know, you have these stupid titles... Uh, and I made that mistake myself, and then I realized, no, 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 no. Uh, I will put as a title whatever I like doing most for this organization. Uh, and in my case, it's code. I code every day. You can check my GitHub profile. I, that's what I'm passionate about. I cannot live without coding. Uh, and uh, so everyone in her website is featured with their own single task. <laughs> you know, there's the the person that does uh, the co community stuff, there's the person that does theory, there's the person that does uh, social media. Uh, but I think that ultimately, you know, in a non-hierarchical world where uh, everything is miscellaneous, there are no hierarchies, but everything can be everything, you know, it's a matter of how you tax stuff. Uh, in that context, uh, 
I think that everyone should, you know, try to figure out what they like to do and uh, find the means to do it for the rest of your life in a way that you can contributing to society. And, uh, you know, hierarchical structures, traditional structures of power are very, uh, are illusions that really don't mean nothing because once mm -hmm. you get to be that guy, the, the number one guy, you, you get power, then you realize, you know, it's still a Wednesday, 5 p.m., and you have to feed your daughter or take mm -hmm. her to the park. Lewis and I were talking about this earlier. You, you no matter what title you have, you got to grind. You, like, you can have any title in the world, but if you're not doing the work, you're not getting stuff done. Yeah. It's, your title doesn't mean shit. It's yeah. what you produce is what is important. Yeah. And the, probably the best thing that you can produce is uh, anything that you are passionate about. And, you know, passion is a component of culture, a component of education, a component of divine inspiration, maybe. Uh, uh, but it's definitely something that makes you unique. Mm -hmm. Because if you are good at something, you get to be good at that thing because you have dedicated so much time to it uh, for the sole reason that your entire self is, you know, f cannot live without doing it. And... Uh, Sometimes discovering that takes a lot of time. Uh, sometimes it takes uh, 10 years, sometimes it takes 50 years. Uh, but I think that you have to keep on uh, looking for it. Uh, there's a, m One of my favorite movies is Rushmore uh, from Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Bill Murray asks uh, uh, Schwartzman, uh, you know, the, the character he's playing, Schwartzman asks uh, Bill Murray, hey, what's the secret? And Bill Murray says, just find something you like to do and do it for the rest of your life. <laughs> That's it. And in this world of self-sovereigns, I think we need to... What I like about open source is that what relevant open source technology is technology that is able to understand what whole is, needs to get filled in the greater scheme of things. And you build on that and you, know, you piggyback on existing open source technologies or you find a use case for open source technologies waiting to find that use case, and you get to inject your project in the greater constellation of uh, innovations that are happening on, on this space. So um, that pursuit, I think it's, 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 it's a thing that you have to exercise every day, identify it, and go for it. This is something I can attest to. Um, for me personally, with a newsletter, uh, something I stumbled into sort of my favorite newsletter. I read it every day. I cannot believe that you actually send it every day. Ah. Uh, it's like, I don't read the newspaper from Argentina anymore. I, <laughs> I read Marty's newsletter, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm honored that you even think about spending some time reading it every day. But that, honestly, it's a whole story here, freaks. I sort of got backed into a corner and had to do the newsletter out of necessity. I was unemployed for about a year. Um been researching Bitcoin for five years, was getting to the final round of multiple interviews, I think six or seven, and getting shut down. And then finally one day I said, fuck it. I'm going to I'm gonna start this. If people like it, we'll another, see where it goes. Another Bitcoin miracle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and I think, like I said, it, it, we live in chaotic times, but at the same time, there's a lot of clarity coming through yeah. as well, where you know for a fact that 
your life doesn't have to be chained to a to a cube from nine to five. Yeah, and, and it's scary, right? Yeah, uh, realizing like I'm you know uh, I'm practically not getting a salary uh, in the sense that uh, you know I, I've been lucky enough to be on Bitcoin er very early on. And it's very counterintuitive to think of my reality financially, you know, in this um, very weird new crypto context um, where, you know, every time I have to sell some Bitcoin for survival, it feels like I'm borrowing from the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> and uh, but it's, uh, you know, I think that if, if I was lucky enough to get into this so early and, you know, yeah, I, I feel a responsibility to give back to it. And that's why I try to work on whatever I feel I'm best at contributing at to the strengthening of uh, this kind of technology for the world. And you're working hard towards this. You've been you've been a globetrotter the last few months. From what I can tell on your Instagram, you were just in Germany, you were in South Korea, yeah. you were in North Korea, correct? Yeah, I went to the border with North Korea. That was surreal, man. What was it like down there? What's going on down there? It's so strange because it's like this ongoing war that it's, uh, you know, uh, this... Uh, and, you know, when I was there, a missile went over Japan and Donald Trump appears in the news every day. And you talk to Koreans and say, uh, you know, uh, young Koreans are like, why don't they die already? And uh, and you go through Seoul and Seoul is a city that has huge avenues so tanks can move fast in the case there is a war with enormous uh, subway infrastructure. So if there's a nuclear attack, everyone on the on the city can go underground. Uh, Can you imagine living in that? Fear? It's like uh, going to uh, a chapter of Evangelion. Like a nuclear war is about to start, and you know the mechas are gonna start shooting each other, and you are in the middle of that chaos. And at the same time, the fascination, you know, that North Korea, such a riddle. Uh, I remember when I was 20 years old, 19, I went to Cuba for a full month, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, growing up as a teenager in Argentina. Uh, the Che Guevara, uh, the famous Cuban revolutionary, is a very powerful figure because he's this romantic uh, guy that went to fight the revolution, uh, liberating Latin America from um, Im American imperialism, right? And I read a bunch of biographies and instantly fell in love with the guy. And uh, so my father, in shock that his son was putting the, the communist uh, <laughs> propaganda on his bedroom... Uh, my father said, so you like Che Guevara and communism? And I said, yes, uh, because we need to liberate the proletariat and fight the oppression of capitalist pigs like you. <laughs> <laughs> my father was pretty nonchalant about it, pretty cool, and said, okay, go to Cuba. I invite you. I will send you there even with a friend of mine who is a Marxist professor from the University of La Habana so he can show you Cuba better than anyone else. And he actually did that. And I went to Cuba with this uh, extreme left-wing Marxist guy who I didn't know was a friend of my father. I was totally in, sort of in shock about that. So, But that speaks about how free the mind of my father actually is. And I went to Cuba for a full month. And uh, I remember, you know, being there and seeing the revolution everywhere. Fidel Castro was on TV every single day. And I landed in La Habana in this house uh, where, you know, it was a former fighter of the Cuban guerrilla mm -hmm. and his grandson lived there. His grandson was 17, 16 years old. I was 18, 19, 20. So he was pretty much my age. And he had a little dog. 
and I asked him, what's the name of your dog? And he said, Linux. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, Linux. My dream is to get on the internet uh, uh, and, and to be able to access the internet and navigate and, and learn about programming. And I want to be a computer scientist when I grow up. I only get 15 hours of internet every day because uh, uh, 15 hours of internet per month because we bribe the telecommunications company guy and you know we get that time and I get to learn some stuff and uh, yeah my dream is 15 hours a month 15 hours a month What year is this 2002 2003 okay. uh, and I was that was a wake up call I w that was like uh, oh wait a second I'm 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 a child of the internet I I am I feel blessed by the internet and here's this this this, this guy my age uh, who loves computers, who loves information technology and is struggling to get access to this because, you know, there's this perfect uh, political mess that censors free speech. You know, there's a lot of things that you could argue in favor of the Cuban government, you know, like the U.S. blockade. But definitely the free speech, the fact that uh, the only book uh, from an American author published in Cuba was from Noam Chomsky, and nothing else uh, was ever printed there that is uh, after 1990, probably. That says a lot about how they are trying to control thoughts. And, and you know, I in that trip, I started fighting the guy that was supposed to <laughs> make, uh, make me fall in love with Cuba. And I... I, I recently read the, the diary that I kept during that trip and I discovered this conversation that I had with, uh, with another Q and you know, one of, of his mistresses because he was in Cuba to fuck around. <laughs> and I remember talking with her and she said, eh, Chico, uh, his dreams are about the past and your dreams are about the future. Don't waste time with him because we were fighting all every day and I was 20 and he was 50. Uh, but he was a revolutionary, a cliche leftist revolutionary. And I was like, this guy willing to learn about Che Guevara and the Cuban revolution. And quite frankly, it was a heartbreak. Uh, my first uh, heartbreak with politics. And I remember getting back to Argentina, desperate to see a shampoo advertising in the streets because I was <laughs> fed up of fucking Fidel Castro. And the next year I was trading stock in Wall Street and I became a capitalist for a little while. <laughs> and, and, and then I, I guess I balanced myself. But that's the problem with, with fanatism. That's the problem when you become ideological, when you mm -hmm. become like you have this perfect theory about reality. And uh, then you become a useful idiot. And, mm -hmm. and we need to constantly fight against that because that's what they want. That's what the people in power want. They want to keep us uh, uh, fanatized with them or with their ideology or with whatever device they can find to manipulate the masses. And they are not shy about it. So keeping a free mind matters a lot. And uh, mm -hmm. now we get the chance to have a technology that rewards uh, you know, uh, a kind of freedom that avoids any kind of financial or political coercion, and that's Bitcoin. And that's an incredible story. Going to Cuba as a Marcus, <laughs> Marxist, leaving as as a pissed off yeah. former Marxist. It was I, my my <laughs> sister always tells me that when you came back from Cuba, you were like so depressed, <laughs> and it was the fact of like realizing my mistake, like. Well, swallowing my pride well, and saying this is bullshit it's something man. we all go through I mean like I was a, a crazy liberal in college uh, in high school college and you 
you go through life, you, you, you start getting paychecks. I think that's when every <laughs> liberal becomes a conservative, but you have to go through that process. I think you have yeah. to, you have to test those ideas. You have Solely to, natural. you have to explore everything. Um, and you can't be afraid to explore everything. That's the, like you said, uh, the people in charge want everybody to be complacent. Uh, and that's what I would argue. So in Cuba, the complacency was sort of forced on people via yeah. communism here in America. I would argue we got complacent in the last three decades, three, four decades, and it happened via consumerism and, yeah. and, and people getting, com- or not confused, but distracted by short-term, short-termism. That's, yeah. what, that's what I'll say. Uh, it is. Uh, there's a saying in Spanish uh, that it's, uh, if you're not a leftist when you are 20, you are insensitive. If you're not a conservative when you are 50, you are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's there might be some truth to that, uh, but uh, uh, you know the bottom line is uh, you know figuring out what what really helps improve people's lives and uh, and I think that uh, I'm a big believer in in the power of technology of technology for good for social transformation for you know improving uh, what what makes us uh, fall in love with life and 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 contributing to society in positive ways. Um, but uh, yeah, it, 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 sometimes learning this stuff takes experience. Definitely. Um, and would you argue that we're sort of in like a Luddite type of time where we're, we're the new age, like Bitcoin decentralized systems is butting heads very, very heavily with, with the old age sort of yeah. centralized financial system. And that's why things seem chaotic, I think, to everybody because you're seeing two diametrically opposed systems sort and of the butting movie, heads. The movie is unfolding with the expected cliches. Like uh, the week that uh, Jamie Demon was trashing Bitcoin and uh, the Chinese Central Bank was banning exchanges, uh, it was like the perfect storm. And I remember being in, in South Korea in those days and thinking, fuck, man, this whole story all over again. And, and, uh, and then, you know, in those moments when Bitcoin... I think it went from 4,500 to, to 3,000. In those moments, you get tested again, whether you believe mm-hmm. it or not. <laughs> Will I buy again or not? Uh, and uh, But, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, Jamie Demon is playing the perfect Lex Luthor role in this story. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it oh. seems so obvious. I mean, it is so obvious. He can't. He can't. I mean, it's actually interesting to see Lloyd uh, Blankenstein. Blankenstein, is that his name? The CEO of Goldman Sachs, he's come out and actually been pretty, well, pretty he, open-minded about. He Bitcoin. sees the opportunity of yeah. his competitor, you know, saying very stupid shit. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what that's what it was interesting to see this week with Lloyd. It was like, all right, here's somebody who's sort of open to this disruption that historic, or if it plays out, will, yeah. will destroy his revenue stream and his business to some extent. Um, but you want to see stuff like that. You want to see people maybe. I would argue capitulation is what you want to see going forward because you, you, you want to convince these people that, hey, this is a better system. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's definitely not going to happen overnight. And maybe that's a good thing. So we have time to build that system parallel. It takes to, time. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm learning as I discover my high school friends suddenly texting me about how to buy Bitcoin now after five years of me telling them, telling them to do it. Uh, I guess uh, sometimes it takes time to, you know, actually you know be able to learn about it and to find the time to to acquire a skill so 
getting convinced about you know the nature of money is very hard because uh, you don't want to think that uh, the US dollar is a fraud. Mm -hmm. You really don't want to believe that because it's a very scary place to to be at. Yeah. But uh, once you develop uh, the balls to actually acknowledge <laughs> the fact that the, any kind of fiat system is a fraud, uh, well, then you can take action. Uh, and that that takes time to those ideas take time to mature. And, and it's you know we have a responsibility being you know pioneers in this space to help teach our family, our friends, our colleagues uh, in the best possible way. You know uh, what these technologies mean and how they can benefit from it. And that's the beautiful part of the incentive system set up in these decentralized systems is that they're feedback loops. So yeah. if you are an early adopter or adopted at any point, making more people use the technology makes it more useful, gives it more utility, makes it more valuable. And if it's a technology that's actually better than what we're using now, even even better. Yeah. Um, and that's what I try to do with the newsletter, with this podcast, is trying to educate you guys about this this is like we've said plenty of times already innovation that comes once in in humanity mm -hmm. um so it's going to take it obviously it's going to take time to transition but no better time than now to start educating people yeah yeah and it's a it's a great purpose it's a great mission and you know this is the probably the reason we're alive now in the sense that uh, you know, this is one of the these guys technologies that are shaping you know the years to come, and hopefully, if we are able to leave any legacy, uh, is uh, in the direction of helping people embrace a world that is more connected, less divisive, uh, more able to you know uh, to 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 bring us together as uh, as you know the one humanity we are actually we actually are. Um, I'm I'm a big optimist in you know I always been and and I think that uh, uh, you know great things are ahead as 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 these technologies uh, start uh, unfold and, and start impacting the world in uh, even greater and more more transformative ways than before. And that's like the most interesting part to think about when you think about this stuff is once we get to that point where. We are a global society, and we realize that, like, and we start going outside of this world. <laughs> yeah, that's when things start to get well. Very interesting. Let me tell you a theory of uh, a good friend of mine uh, who has pretty interesting theories about humanity, uh, and he he has me thinking about this one that ultimately, whatever code seems to be operating in life in this planet, whether it's DNA or you know. Uh, the emergent properties of DNA within culture and you know within uh, technology and everything we seem to create seems to point in the direction that we will end up creating some kind of vessel that gets out of this planet and goes into another planet with as much as as much information as we can put in that other planet. Mm -hmm. That other planet could be Mars right now, but could definitely be any other planet in any place in the universe in the long term. And maybe that's the way life uh, you know, tries to uh, expand throughout the cosmos. Uh, you know, it's this this thing that uh, you know, you know, this this thing that goes through molecules and then through biology and then through animals and then through humans and then through society and culture and technology, until it reaches the point of generating some kind of rocket that is able to go as into as many other 
you know, virgin planets as possible, and then the whole thing begins all over again mm -hmm. anywhere else in the solar system or in anywhere else in the galaxy or in the planet or in or in the in the cosmos. So it, there seems to be like that that uh, that pull uh, of uh, uh, life trying to perpetuate itself uh, in the universe. Uh, we haven't found anyone else so far. Uh, but uh, maybe Satoshi. Uh, maybe Satoshi. <laughs> this is this is one of our favorite theories here on Tales from the Crypt. Is Satoshi as an alien or an yeah. AI? Um, and that's what our conversation with DeSantis, when he was describing how you could use the blockchain similar to what you did with Roma's birth certificate, but embed DNA information yeah. and send out radio waves. Yeah. And, I think you know. I think we have. We must not uh, discard the theory of uh, Satoshi as alien AI. It's, I think it's one of the most fun, but yet uh, interesting theories to actually look at as long as we don't know who Satoshi is. <laughs> Let's dive into it. So how would you describe this theory? So, look, it, when this, let's, let's look at, at human history. Uh, when the European conquistadors uh, took control of the American continent, uh, the American natives, they subverted uh, the natives by giving them these shiny mirrors and these, you know, these things where the natives could see their reflections, while they all completely overtook their, you know, power structure and their, you know, and they, you know, conquered their gold and their precious metals, uh, which for the natives were not that worth that that valuable. But uh, economic subversion uh, goes a long way to mm -hmm. conquer a civilization. And, uh, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto appears, emerges as an entity on the Internet that we cannot track to a biological entity as far as we know, and uh, proposes this uh, technology that suddenly, you know, sucks uh, $100 billion plus dollars out of the financial system in less than a decade. So uh, uh, if there's any alien species trying to conquer Earth... Uh, that kind of financial, economical subversion mm -hmm. uh, certainly is a very good tactic. <laughs> Bitcoin could be the mirrors. <laughs> Bitcoin could be the mirrors. Uh, Bitcoin, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, I would not, uh, you know, deny the fact that, you know, this could be a possibility. There are other mm -hmm. theories, you know, there's the the famous uh, 1996 paper from NSA that describes how to do a electronic cryptographic mint and uh, it's a paper that describes a lot of the techniques that are being used in mm -hmm. crypto. Uh, and, you know, some people point out to, you know, the NSA being behind it all, or maybe a rogue actor of the NSA. Um, but regardless of, uh, you know, the authorship of behind this idea, this is an inevitable idea. The idea that we can structure blockchains in information space is as inevitable as the idea that we can build computers in information space. Computers, the internet, and blockchains are architectures that uh, live first in information and then get expressed in matter. Mm -hmm. uh, you can literally build a computer with carbon or with any you know, physical chemical uh, material. Um, these, are en uh, uh, these are architectures that are information-driven. Uh, it turns out that silicon is probably the best material to build computers and to build networks and to build uh, blockchains. But these are inevitable ideas in the, that emerge out of the intrinsic properties of mathematics and information. So one could argue 
that the fact that we get awoken about these possibilities, that uh, these ideas are embedded in, 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 in light, which is the main carrier of information. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when there's a great book about Alan Turing, the best biography ever written about him. It's called Turing's Cathedral. And in Turing's Cathedral, George Dyson, the author of the book, right at the end of it, really dares to explore this theory where he says uh, the most intelligent or the most uh, adaptive way for intelligence to move across the universe is in the form of information. And uh, because information can move at the speed of light, it does not care about the kind of vessel, whether it's a, you know, an, a super spaceship or whatever. It doesn't, doesn't care, care about, about form. That. It doesn't care about form. So information goes through time and space. And, uh, you know, if you want to uh, put any kind of revolutionary uh, idea out there in the universe, you will put it in the form of information. When people were building the first computers, they were building those computers to calculate the astrophysical configuration of the stars that they were witnessing for the first time with the first, you know, electromagnetic telescopes. So the information to build computers literally came from outer space. <laughs> and uh, Holy crap. So, the, you know, we humans, we give credit to our egos for everything. And that's fine. And, and I admire hard workers like Alan Turing that, you know, literally saved humanity from the Nazis. But, uh, you know, if we are more open-minded about it, I think that the argument that, you know, the epiphanies that led to the creation of computers or the creation of blockchains came from uh, natural properties of information embedded in light that travels across the universe through time and space is a very solid argument about how, uh, you know, it's not about aliens. It's about how uh, intelligence gets stored in, in this universe we inhabit. It's the universe discovering itself. Exactly. Awakening. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so crazy to think about like when you break it down to that level. Like yeah. that's why that's why we should push people to do what you love because it is a miracle that we're here. The and only truth is love. That's true. <laughs> God is love. I'm a big believer in that. Absolutely. That's, Hell yeah, man. That's why I end every podcast on peace and love. That's all it comes down to. You know, I was in this Halloween party last week, and I tweeted stuff. Next day, I figured out my tweets, and one of the tweets was, whatever you find it, love is the answer. And, you know, it's it's very true. Uh, but uh, we tend to forget about that, <laughs> we humans. We do. We do. And it's because the ego gets in the way. Oh, yeah. And like we were talking earlier with psychotic politicians and stuff like that, <laughs> what you have to realize is that the fact that we are alive is a gift. The chances of us being here is beautiful. on this pebble flying through space it's and able beautiful. to have a conversation where we're talking through microphones that's yeah. recording that we're going to post to the internet <laughs> that's going to get sent out later. The chances of us being here right now are so infismal that so small that it is... It's miraculous. Enjoy it, people. <laughs> just, just enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So... We just got deep into the woods there with the universe <laughs> and life theory, the theory of love. Let's bring it back towards Bitcoin a little bit. Um, I guess what do I want to touch on? I don't really want to touch on the politics of anything right now. I want to talk more about philosophy mm -hmm. and, and how it can help us and how it will help us going forward. So I guess 
like Pierre said, we're at we're at the end of the beginning right now. He would yeah. say where we have all this institutional money getting ready to come in, um, and I guess my biggest question and what I really am trying to get across with this podcast and the newsletter again is education and. I'm a tr- strong believer in that everybody should hold their private keys. And yeah. do you see a world in which we evolve or which we move towards where people aren't storing their coins on exchanges and are sort of own their private keys? Do you think there needs to be hardware that needs to be developed going forward? What needs to happen? Do you think, like I was telling Pierre, this dude Neil would find based out of, he's not based out of a ba- or he's not based out of Hong Kong. He's based out of Beijing, but he was saying, that Bitcoin, if it's successful, will usher in the next enlightenment. And I sort of agree with that. And do you think people will find out on them by themselves, like how, how to secure their, their wealth via Bitcoin? Or do you think we're going to have to have like a massive, massive education push? You know, when I was in, in London sometime uh, a couple of years ago, and on an official trip, actually, the, the government of the UK invited me there and they put me in front of very interesting people. And among them was like the number one guy of uh, British intelligence. And I asked him about, uh, you know, what uh, what was the philosophy of uh, the UK government uh, regarding, um, uh, you know, uh, the privacy of uh, users. Um, and you know uh, encryption and whatnot and he gave me an answer that is very common in 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 crypto but i learned it back then that was you know he said that the philosophy that they had uh, as a government was to uh, try to teach people about uh, digital privacy in the same way they taught people about hygiene uh, when they were installing Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, potable water in the British sewage system back in the 19th century. In the 19th century, they had to teach people to actually take a bath, to wash their hands, to take care of their private parts and, you know, develop that kind of education so society would would be more hygienic and more healthy. And uh, with information technology, it's the same thing. You need to develop your hygiene regarding your data and your private information and and I think that we need to uh, explore a path that helps people learn and al- become alphabetized regarding uh, how to protect their data. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you know, uh, hardware wallets or a- any kind of technology is always useful in the sense that you know, one day you die and you need your family to take care of your, of your stuff. Uh, so in that sense, developing technology that can be trusted and that can be uh, secure enough to to prevent any kind of theft uh, or loss and, and you know build the right protocols uh, really matters uh, companies like Trezor I think and, and uh, Ledger and, and all these new emergent uh, crypto hardware wallets I think are are gonna be very relevant players in the short term because they are uh, really talking about uh, that practice. Mm-hmm. And making that 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 usage more more commonplace. Mm-hmm. And this sort of brings us back to the the conversation of Internet 1.0 versus Internet 2.0. Um, do you think we have to start it from scratch? <laughs> I think that uh, you know there's always legacy that you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Uh, a reset, uh, you know, is is always a 
it's not that easy to actually make happen. But, you know, uh, I think that uh, definitely on this new wave of the internet, identity is the browser. Uh, we are definitely putting our right to control our private information back in the hands of the user rather than in the hands of Facebook or Google. And, uh, you know, I th my sensation is that you know, a lot of people are looking for the next app that is similar to the web, but now using blockchain-based technology. Mm -hmm. And the difference between web-based, successful web-based technology and blockchain-based technology is that any technology that is relevant in the blockchain universe has to be geopolitical. Uh, it, it makes no sense to make uh, a Snapchat for blockchain. <laughs> if it's not uh, <laughs> driving some kind of institutional transformation on a global scale. Mm -hmm. uh, successful blockchain technologies like Bitcoin are geopolitical because uh, the nature of blockchains impact bureaucracy and institutional realities. And uh, you know, aiming for anything less than that is a waste of time. So in that regard, I think that... Uh, we need to acknowledge the, the the relevance, the political and economical relevance of these technologies. That you know they won't be competing against the record labels or the Hollywood uh, corporations. They will be competing against nation states, mm -hmm. uh, the IMF, major banks. That's the 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 next you know big enemy to beat in this new wave of the internet, and. Uh, you know, uh, if I have to bet on a winner on this on this battle, I think it's a, a no-brainer again. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much vested on that bet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah. No, but it's crazy seeing seeing the pushback from from like social media. Uh, w one example I like to um, go back to is Syria in 2012. Like I was saying, when I got very into Twitter. Around then, what fascinated me the most about it was when John Kerry in the State Department was thinking about bombing Syria after that YouTube video came out of chemical weapon attack. And at the time, it was very, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't very like nobody was certain if that that video was authentic or not. And there was a good chance that the State Department was going to try to convince Obama to go bomb Syria. And yeah. it was, there was a lot of heavy talk about it, but people got on Twitter, they got on Facebook, and they said, no, like, what are you talking, like, let's not get into <laughs> another another war here. And the powers that be sort of took a step back from that and, 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 and wound up not bombing them. But it was interesting to see that sort of just being vocal on these social networks and, and showing up and being like, all right, no, this sort of direct sort of like a direct democracy like voting on Twitter with yeah. your likes and, and retweets like don't do this and I think that one of the greatest things to to uh, figure out in this world where you have bombardments of information happening in front of our screens every day is really developing the kind of systems that can tell uh, truth from bullshit uh, mm -hmm. and that's not easy uh, you know, you get to see these CGI demos that uh, can suddenly put uh, George Bush or Barack Obama speaking, uh, and you cannot really tell the difference between uh, simulated the simulated one with, with the real one. Um, you know, this kind of attacks to our attention and to our perception will 
will keep uh, increasing as artificial intelligence keeps mastering you know the uncanny valley um so uh, i think that the the great political frontier that we'll be discussing in the 21st century is this frontier between what's real and what's not, uh, what's artificial intelligence and what's human consciousness. Mm -hmm. And we have to be very hyper-conscious about this, again, because yeah. the whole fake news meme that's been going around, yeah. you, we, cannot, we cannot create gatekeepers that decide what is true, what is not. You have, it is a personal responsibility. Yeah. You have to do your research. You have to, it, you have to make it a personal responsibility to determine what is true, what is false. And you cannot rely on these third parties to do it for you. It's as simple as that going forward. Personal sovereignty. Personal sovereignty. <laughs> and that's what it's all about. And I think this is a perfect end point here. It's been a great conversation. Santiago, it's always a pleasure. It's been one of the best conversations I ever had, period. Oh, uh, stop so it. Stop <laughs> it. <laughs> no, it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, it's a uh, yeah, good conversation. If there's a... Do you have... A word of, not a, I don't want to say a word of wisdom, a word of advice for the freaks, and a parting note, if you will, <laughs> for uh, Bitcoin specifically. Speaking of Bitcoin, for people that are new to it, like Lewis and huddle, huddle, <laughs> huddle, and huddle, you'll be rewarded. I, I, that's the best advice that's ever been given on this podcast. It's early in the, <laughs> it's early in the podcast's history. But that's the best advice we've given out so far. Just huddle. Um, again, Santiago Siri, one of my favorite people on earth. Find him on Twitter at Santi Siri. Um, si hablas español, compra el libro de Santi Hactivismo. Puedes encontrarlo en Amazon.com. That's right. Again, it's all about love. All about love. All, all about love. Need, all you need is love. <laughs> We're going to end it there. Peace and love, people. Wow, dude. That, that was insane. <laughs> <laughs> what a dream.